0: The path doesn't have to be straight. We have and a lot more information and your can job is to send. have to we know so why it are. Value courage. courage.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. And this is the We Get Real AF podcast a safe and inclusive place where we redefine feminism and bridge cultural gaps with each episode.
2: We talk with female leaders about things that matter to you most, your health, finances, raising kids, building
1: your career, everyday life, and so much more. Plus, we take a look at how emerging tech and science are shaping our future. Not a coder or a rocket scientist, neither are we. We will spark your curiosity and give you practical advice for living your best life in a world that's changing at lightning speed. Let's learn together. Join us every
2: Tuesday for smart, real, and relatable conversations. And subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find at WeGetRealAF
1: across all social media platforms for exclusive online video content. So grab a coffee, set your intentions, and let's dive in. Today on Real Health, we're talking about the exhaustive effects of perfectionism and how extremist tendencies are more of a hindrance to productivity and mental health than they are helpful. We're joined by our friend, Elizabeth Cormier-May, CEO of women's health company Mamagen, to peel back these layers and gain healthy perspective when it comes to doing things well versus doing things perfectly. Liz, welcome back. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. I'm guilty of all or nothing like an all or nothing mm-hmm. thinking. So if I'm going to go do something, and I think Sue, you and I are very similar with this. Like we we want to tackle a project, start it, finish it, and be like, yes, I got it done and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it's just not realistic. And it sets your, yourself up for like, you know, failure. I call it self-sabotage. Yeah. So why don't we just start there?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great place to start. I am also so guilty of this. I mean, right down to little trivial things. Like I can't read multiple books at a time. I have to start a book, finish a book, move on to the next. Um, and so, and that, I mean, that just explodes into all parts of life, right? With your relationships, with your jobs, with your children, with your family. And, and I I love the term self-sabotage because that's exactly what it is that we're doing to ourselves. When we expect our ourselves to be perfect in all of those various situations, all at the same time, all in the same day, it's just completely unrealistic.
2: For me I think back to my childhood and I think I was sort of raised with the mindset if you're going to do anything do it well. Right. But you know well can easily slide into perfectionism and then as we're saying you're sort of setting yourself up for failure from the beginning. So where is this all starting? Where is it coming from?
0: I think a lot of it comes with how we grew up, what was modeled for us. And for me growing up it was always do your best, do your best, do your best. For me particularly this notion of always doing my best in my mind, I translated it to being the best. And those are two very different things, right? Do your best versus be the best are two completely different mindsets. So I think we need to be really careful about doing your best versus being or doing the best. And I, and I think those pressures are starting to happen earlier in our world, which makes me sad for our children, because I feel like I still got to be a kid for a long time, right? I still had a childhood that was Relatively device free, focused on being outside, Um, you know, all of the normal good and bads that come with being a kid. But now, even things like college pressure starting to happen. I mean, my son's in third grade and they're already talking about doing you know, all of the sports and extracurriculars and make sure you're at the highest level and everything now so that when you get into middle school, you can continue it so that you set yourself up for high school. So you get to the best college. And, and my son is, is already at eight saying, well, I don't know if I want to go to college. I want to be a builder. I want to build things. What I don't need to go to college for that. So already at eight, he's having these internal conversations with himself that he knows don't align with the core messaging In school, and that's already starting to, I wouldn't say give him anxiety, but making him ask some really difficult questions that I don't think eight year olds should have to be thinking about. But it's that cultural uh, focus on being perfect, taking it all on, standing out. You know, you want your resume, your application to stand out. Well, how do you do that? You do everything,
1: right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's
0: just not a sustainable mindset. It's not, it's certainly not healthy for little kids, I don't think. It's. I don't think it's sustainable throughout college and or beyond in a career or a marriage or a relationship or a friendship. It's just not a healthy way to approach it. You don't eat the whole pie. You take a piece here and a piece here, <laughs> and that needs to be good enough and, and in line with what's important to you and where your strengths are. So let's break that
2: down, Liz, because you're making a really good point about we have to be able to manage this or help our children manage it for their lives. And we Mm -hmm. also have to learn how to manage this for our own selves. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of a fine line between being a go-getter, which I think all three of us here are go-getters. And we agree that that served us well. And it's a good thing. And turning it into like a mental
1: health stressor for our kids and for ourselves. Our kids are watching everything we do. Right. So it could be like little things that we don't even realize, like we're talking to them and we're like instilling in them all these great things that they're also observing and they're saying, well, this is what mommy and daddy do. So this is what I have to do. Um, I remember my mom, young age, she would clean the house almost every weekend from top to bottom. I mean, if it that if that meant that we didn't do anything else that weekend, yeah. that's just how it went, right? <laughs> I am not built that way. (laughs) Like I know I love a clean house. I, I have, two children now. And we also want to take advantage of the time that we're not working with our kids. Yeah. So if I have to choose, I'm going to play with my kids and I'm going to yeah. take them outside and do the activities versus like clean the house. And I, yeah. you know, I'll put things off. And if, as long as the clothes are clean, if they're in a clean pile, they're in a clean pile and we'll grab right. them and they'll yeah. be and put right. away when I get a chance. But that was something that I had to train myself to do and mm-hmm. be okay with and not feel like I was lazy. Mm-hmm. Right because I'm such a go-getter in all of these other areas. Mm -hmm. So I had to say, wait a second, I need to break the cycle. Mm -hmm. And I need to let my daughter know that it's okay because family time is important. And not saying that my mom didn't think family time was important, but that was like, she was just wired that way. She had to get it done. She had, she had to keep the ball going, right? Like the hamster in the wheel, our children are watching us. And it's not just what we tell them it's what they're observing.
0: I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I see it with particularly my son more than my daughter. He gets a weekly math packet from school and that's his homework for the week. And he cannot start it and then come back to it and finish it a different day. He has to start it immediately. He has to get it done. He cannot, he gets physically uncomfortable and upset. If I say, bud, just put it away, you know, let's go do something else. Come back to it. You have all week. He cannot do it. And I know, and I know, and this is awful. I know that's modeled by me. I know he sees me do that. And just one more email. Hold on. I'll be right there. Just one more time. One more call. I'm coming. I know everybody's seeing at dinner, but I'm on my way. I promise. I know that comes from me and it breaks my heart. Every single time we start the math packet, because I know that was modeled by me, by my choices, by my behavior. And that he is not, he, he, he's not doing it on purpose. It's not even a conscious decision. It's now it's the way I've wired him. I've tried to do little things to change that. Like, we travel every weekend for hockey. And this weekend, for the first time, I did not bring my computer. A whole weekend, didn't bring my computer. I thought my heart was going to beat out of my chest. I was was so (laughs) anxious over it. But it was one of the best hockey weekends we had. And I was entirely present other than, you know, a few fire drill emails I took care of on my phone. But other than that, I was hundred percent completely present, not thinking about, oh God, I got to get this out or that out or do this. Or there was none of that because it wasn't an option because my computer was not physically there. And so that one small shift made an enormous difference. And so I'm trying to consciously make more of those small shifts so that I'm not modeling unhealthy behaviors for them that, that will stay with them for the rest of their life.
2: I love that. So modeling healthy behaviors for your kids is one practical tactic we can use. Another one that I remember hearing from a friend of mine who is a parenting educator, positive discipline educator. And she told me this years ago when my girls were small, she said, it's really important for you to instill in your children sort of a self measuring mechanism. So instead of saying, I'm so proud of you for doing really great on that test asking your kid, how do you feel about that? You should feel proud of yourself for how you've done. So letting, yeah. so turning the lens back on them to be their own barometer, instead of seeking outside gold stars and approvals from the mm. world around them, really teaching them to feel good about themselves for the amount of effort that they're putting in and to look inward, I guess, for that self-validation. And I think that that's really important because otherwise I feel it's so easy to slip into a mindset where we're seeking approval. We're seeking those gold stars, even as adults, we're looking for external uh, validation of our efforts. And we're not really relying on our own internal barometer. I think that's an important thing to instill in kids young. Mm -hmm. I think
0: that's great. I think that is such a great and such an easy change to make rather than good job guys you got an A or you got a 100 that's fantastic is how do you feel about this are you excited are you proud of yourself i think that's such a a manageable relatively small change to make you're having the conversation already you're already acknowledging something but rather than making a definitive statement around how you feel about it asking them the question about how they feel i think that's great that's a really i'm going to i'm going to try to do that more
1: I do too. I love that so, and I think that also gets them into the habit of positive affirmations, mm-hmm. um, which I think are really, really important. Um, especially when you have, you know, so many trolls out there online and bullies at school. Like whenever my daughter gets up and says, you know, I'm strong or I'm great. Look at how great I did doing this. Like, I'm like, you go girl. Yeah. <laughs> yep, Absolutely. You know, So I, I love that shift in thinking. And again, it is it's work. When we we talk about doing the work, it's, it's thinking outside of what we've learned uh, from our upbringing, but also all these cultural quote unquote norms that should be, should be changed and revisited and, and just um, changing the narrative.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And changing the narrative inside of our own heads as well, because Mm -hmm. um, I think it takes a great amount of self-awareness as adult women to go through our day and say, okay, I'm doing my best here. And, and I deserve credit for that. I'm not going to get to all the things on my list today, but I'm going to get to these things that are really important. And I can feel good about that. And that takes a lot of intention because I think our tendency is to look at all the things that we're not getting to
1: and focus on that instead. And it is just a whole mind shift. It is a, it it takes work. It takes work. It doesn't happen from one day to the next
0: it does take work. And I, um, that's something I, for the last three years or so, I've very intentionally worked on. And I feel like I'm finally getting the point where I'm not forgiving myself for not doing them anymore. I'm just, they just didn't happen. And I think that was a big shift for me. Like this thought process, like, okay, this, the sense that I had to forgive myself for not accomplishing everything. No, you don't. You accomplish what you get done. You do it to the best of your ability. And tomorrow you execute on the rest. And, and I feel like I'm just starting to get to the point where I'm not, there's not this overwhelming sense of guilt that I didn't get to everything on my list for the day. I'm not forgiving myself. It just is, it's an, it is what it is. And tomorrow those things are still on my list and I might not get to them tomorrow, but I'm going to get to all of the things I can and they stay on the list until they get crossed off. And that is, that has done tremendous for me because I don't have this like overwhelming ball of anxiety for not getting to everything every day anymore.
2: Exactly. And anxiety can become a habit, right? I mean, it truly can. And, uh, and again, it's this narrative that we have inside our heads that we just need to be intentional and aware of and change.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it could be just this looming thing too. Like where you, you're doing everything else that you need to do, but you still have in the back, like, I haven't gotten to that thing. I have to get mm-hmm. to that thing. And it can just be mm-hmm. there nagging you until you actually are able to yeah. give it the attention it needs and deserves, but it, it can be debilitating, you know, to, to yes. Sue's point, like it could just carry through and um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: managing that is hard.
0: And it has to be a, a very conscious, intentional decision to manage it and make the small changes you can And in, in mind chef in mind, in your your mindset, in your behaviors, in the way you track and set your own goals, all of those things need small tweaks to get to the point where it's not looming over you twenty four hours a day.
1: Building the wall like brick by brick, mm-hmm. you know, and doing little pieces at a time, and before you know it, the wall's built or whatever it is you're building <laughs> the oh, sky skyscra- skyscraper. Um, mm-hmm. um, there there's something to those micro adjustments and just doing a little bit each day and looking at your progress at the end of the week, month, whatever, mm-hmm. set a time, timetable yeah. for yourself to look back at the progress. And that way you, you see, you know, movement and forward uh, progression.
2: And I think when you don't get through the list or you don't do things perfectly, but you do it to the best of your ability and you accept that and you feel whole about that, you're actually mm-hmm. getting a gift to those people as well, because they're looking at you and they're saying, okay, you know, the tension can come down a little bit now and I can mm-hmm. do my best as well. So keep right. that in mind that sometimes when you don't hit the mark, it's actually a gift to those around you. Mm.
1: Yeah,
0: that's a, that's a great point. And I would say, um, I think that's one of the really good things that came out of the last two years is there, the the line between real life and work was blurred and it allowed people to be real and it allowed people to actually see. Everybody has a thousand things on their plate and nobody can ever get them all done. And I think that those blurring of lines is actually a really healthy thing. It allowed people to take a step back and say, I'm sorry, I, I didn't get this done today. I, my kid was sick. I had to do at-home learning. I, and and it just made everybody a bit more human. And I think that that's one of the really good things that came out of this time.
1: hmm Agreed. Everyone can relate and resonate with those things. And it's not like, oh, I'm the only one in this position. There are so many others and we can kind of unite here. (laughs) It's it's Mm -hmm. been like this great cultural exhale. (laughs) Totally.
0: That's a great, that's a great way to put it.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, Liz. This is a great note to end on. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you.
0: you.
1: Hey there. We hope you're enjoying the show.
2: Do you work for a company or brand that wants to empower women? We're looking for sponsors for the We Get Real AF podcast.
1: Reach out to us at wegetrealaf at gmail.com for more information. You can also
2: show your support by finding the We Get Real AF podcast at ifundwomen.com. We have patron exclusives waiting just for you.
1: Thanks for listening.
2: Moving on to
1: Profesh Sesh with Elisa Walters, our professional recruiter and talent specialist, where we talk all things career development. Anybody who's listened to Profesh Sesh knows that we always talk about connections and mentorship and how important it is to find someone who not only is there to support you and lift you up and empower you, but to also guide you throughout your uh professional career. And today, we're going to dig into that a lot more. Um, how to be a good mentor, mentee, what questions to ask,
3: uh, all the things. So Lisa, let's let's get in it. I think uh, the first thing I'm going to call out that no matter where you are in your career, um, having a mentor is so important because I think we've said this so many times on this podcast is that Um, it's important to always remain a student, no matter how high the corporate ladder you climb, no matter how many businesses you open, no matter where you get in your trajectory, um, having a mentor and somebody that you can bounce ideas off of, continue to learn from, um, and who can essentially be, you know, be an advocate for you and vice versa is so important. So, um, I would say, you know, um, if you're just starting out in your career, um, really starting to own those relationships, start networking, start those conversations, because I think that's great practice as you continue to um, to to advance and to move forward. Um, and then I think that, you know, what goes into a mentorship relationship is you want to be mindful that when you you're asking somebody to essentially be your mentor, um, that you're being mindful of the time and and that the time that you're using is going to be time that's that's incredibly valuable to both yourself and to that mentor. Be prepared. Come with questions that you can ask and, and do your research. Know what that person's background is. Um, and in those conversations, use that as a as a jumping off point for the discussions. And I think knowing, you know, if it's, hey, you're looking at their LinkedIn profile, you're seeing all the jobs that they've had, any organizations they're a part of, any education, those are jumping off points to peel back the layers, to really get to understand, um, you know, not just those core competency skills got that got them to where they are, but also, what makes them a, a whole person? Um, because there's a lot of traits, you know, resilience and people skills and communication. All of those things you can assess in those conversations. So come prepared with questions. Um, do your research, and really make sure that you're aligning yourself both as a, a mentor and a mentee with people you you can continue to learn from. Um, I think that's so important. Eventually, as a mentor pay it forward, be a a mentor to somebody more junior and and provide that because I think that those relationships are just so crucial. Is it
2: important, Elisa, in the beginning to sort of set some expectations, some standards, maybe even just some ground rules for what this relationship is going to look like so that neither party feels uh, that too much is being asked of them? And I'm thinking of things like how many Times or how often we're going to meet or what time length of time we're going to meet about if there's certain areas that we're going to focus on and certain things that that we agree are off limits. I mean, how can you set yourselves up for a successful partnership as a mentor mentee?
3: I think establishing ground rules, the expectations is so important from the mentee perspective, asking, "Do you hey, do you have time to meet once a month or once every other month or once every 3 months?" um you know, gauging what that, you know, that time could look like. "Hey, is can we jump on a Zoom for a half an hour and and talk things through?" Um and if, and and if you're just starting out, the cadence might be more Once a month, and then maybe, you know, once a quarter or twice a year. Uh, But yes, absolutely set those expectations. um, So that, you know, again, on both parts, there's this established set time that you're going to get together. Um, And I think it also it holds each other accountable. Um, so that there's that time to prepare. And, you know, you may want to have a running doc with like the, the conversation, you know, the talking points, the actionable items. And maybe there is, you know, from a from a mentee standpoint, maybe each one of those sessions ends with how you're going to come prepared for the next time. Um, so, yes, I love that idea, making sure that you're communicating timelines, um, setting those expectations and setting that that running cadence.
1: I want to acknowledge that this can be intimidating on both sides, being the mentor and the mentee. Super flattering if somebody asks you to be a mentor, but also comes with a huge responsibility because you want to give them the value that they are expecting and wanting to to gain from, you know, their interaction with you. And then coming from the mentee, you want to have these educated questions and, you know, not waste someone's time. How can we just ease into this type of relationship is, you know, I guess if I had any advice, it would be to treat it as getting to know somebody because you might know them, you know, um, on a, on a high level, but really asking how they got to where they were about their career journey, you know, talk about yours and what, where you want to get to, but I'm going to let you kind of further go into that, Elisa, like different ways that you can break the ice in the situation.
3: Understand their background, just over you know a high level overview um, based on what their their LinkedIn might say or some of the other professional uh, websites. Find the common ground. If there's something that you can pull from from their LinkedIn or you know if there's things that they've published or they have a business, um, figure out if there's some common ground and, and bring that to the table. Um, and I think you know it's it's like you said you're getting to know somebody it's like you're you're dating you know um you're you're dating and finding somebody who um who's going to be that trustworthy credible person that you're you're leaning into and when you sit down it doesn't have to be automatically let's dive into business you know have have a casual hi how are you how was your weekend how's your day going um and break the ice with you know some Just take it back to the basics of of questioning. Maybe having those conversations and asking questions may not necessarily feel um, easy for you. Always follow the who, what, where, when, why, and how. But I do think that starting the conversation with, you know, those, those niceties and, and. Um, making it a little bit more personalized um, and knowing who it is you're going to be talking to, um, I, I think that's going to help. That's going to help alleviate some of those anxieties.
2: Lisa, if
3: somebody is interested in
2: becoming a men- mentor, or somebody's interested in being mentored, but they don't necessarily have that person in mind, are there resources that you know of? Within LinkedIn or other places to go
3: to find that type of relationship and to find a good match? So I would say the first place to start is within your own organization and see if the company has an existing mentorship program that you can sign up with and start there. Look at your alumni network. If you did attend college, uh, trade school, wherever you know, even in your high school, um, see if there's an alumni network that you can connect with. Um, I think that those are two easy places to start. LinkedIn has a great search feature where if, if there's an organization that you see yourself, like that's your dream organization. If you're looking to work at a company like, a Booz Allen Hamilton, or you want to work at Netflix um, and you want to work in HR, you can look HR, Netflix, and all of these people are going to come up and you get to see all of these different people with all of these unique backgrounds. And you could start there. That could be a good place to set up those virtual coffees, but start in your own backyard, your company or your schools.
2: Mm -hmm. And I would
3: say too, I've noticed like on
2: LinkedIn that people in their profile, sometimes they'll say, um, Interested in serving on a board mentoring. So if you see somebody that sounds interesting that you have no relationship with, uh, but you see that on their profile, that can be a good thing to look out for as well.
1: And I did the schools piece, Elisa, especially, um, you know, high school. I think that that's such a like way to give back in a way to even tiptoe into mentorship, you know, just because you're, you're able to to give a real life perspective on a lot of different things and, and hopefully um, be a great influence. My next question is coming from a place of almost dual mentorship um, where, you know, you're networking with someone who might be in the same phase of life, but that you guys can learn from each other and, you know, can we still call that mentorship? You know, it's not just networking, but you know, you're learning from their experience, they're learning from yours, and it's potentially um, a new relationship that you're that you're exploring and wanting to grow. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit.
3: You know, we learn so much from from our peers, and I think that you're both supporting each other. You're both kind of giving that you know gentle nudge or that push. And I think it's so important to have that that dual mentorship where you can provide um the sounding board, the accountability. Maybe, you know, you're both talking about, hey, we want you're both at that point where you want to step into that next level. You know, you want to aim for that promotion. Um, having the support of somebody you can bounce off of like, hey, how did you How did you um, navigate those conversations? I think it's so, so very important to to have that dual mentorship where you can bounce back and forth. I think it's so important. Thank you so much as always, Alisa.
1: All right, time for Anything Goes, where we talk just about anything. As
2: content creators and professional communicators, today's Anything Goes topic is especially important to Vanessa and me. We're going to be talking about the rise of cancel culture and what that means for good communication, for cultural discourse, and even for our foundational freedoms in America. So uh, just going to unpack cancel culture because this comes up a lot, and I personally find it very disturbing.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I I have some notes here just as I was thinking of on this topic, because it stirs up a lot of emotion. And I think that it needs to be spoken about, obviously. But I think the emotional part of that is the reason why it's so disturbing, right? And Mm -hmm. how it can be taken out of context and all the things. But I kind of want to start at the beginning. We know that for every action, there's an equal reaction. That's like the basic principle of cause and effect. And We make choices every day that impact not only our lives, but the lives of others around us. Um, And as we know, impact can be positive, negative, and in some cases, it can also be neutral. But the outcomes to each of these effects vary from beneficial and rewarding to consequential. And in the vein of cancel culture, it can be destructive. And I think that's where you and I kind of raise our hands up and say, where do we go from here? You know, just to slap someone on the hand to make an example of them, um, is that where we stop? What do we learn from that? And then obviously, too, we talked about like the severity of each of these issues varies greatly, too. And there needs to be a balance in how those respective issues are handled.
2: Great, And I would even take a step back from there and just say, when we talk about cancel culture, let's just give sort of a basic definition of what we mean, even, because I do think there's different degrees of consequences and of dampening people's opinions and voices in, in the public marketplace. But canceling somebody is cancel culture is. Basically, canceling people, brands, and even shows and movies due to what some consider to be offensive or problematic remarks or ideologies. And this was interesting, Vanessa, because I was doing some research as well this morning, and the term cancel culture actually emerged from a song about a bad romance that was later incorporated into a misogynistic movie scene. So the song was Your Love is Cancelled, and it was by Niall Rogers, and it was about a date gone awry. But then in a movie later on in 1991, um, the movie was New Jack City, Wesley Snipes' character Nino Brown dumps his girlfriend and says, cancel that bitch, I'll buy another one. And that is where the term cancel culture came from originally, which is so ironic because obviously that is very misogynistic and Mm -hmm. what cancel culture purports to do is to silence things like misogyny and, you know, homophobia and all the things that, you know, racism, things that we consider to be negative. But for me, the foundational problem with cancel culture is that we live in a liberal democracy and a liberal democracy is based on freedom of expression. And what that means is that some of the expression is going to be things that really bother us, and we really disagree with it. And others will be things that we agree with. But it all has to be out there in some form or function, because the very definition of a liberal democracy is having the ability to have your voice heard and then have people disagree with you. Totalitarian regimes cancel people. That's where one person controls the microphone in the public arena. And that is not what we want to become.
1: Absolutely. We want the freedom of speech. Um, And to your point, a lot of these things are subjective. There are the outliers of these situations that are super, you know, outrageous and they should be handled to the extreme. And I, I do agree with that. Um, And I don't think time should have anything to do with it. As we know, we talked about the Me Too movement when we were talking about doing this uh, segment. I I believe we're both of that mindset that, you know, depending on the issue and the severity, 100%, it needs to be spoken about and and treated as as what it is. However, Mm -hmm. again, I go back to how do we balance the scales where we remain intolerant to these egregious acts and behavior but keep an open floor of communication for differing thoughts and opinions and learning from each other's lived experience. How Mm -hmm. do we keep empathy alive in these situations? And I I don't know, we've clearly haven't figured it out as a society, Um, but I think that we're gonna need to figure it out quickly. If not, we're going to be, it's a Black Mirror episode. You Mm -hmm. know, you you just X people out and you pretend they don't exist anymore.
2: Well, and it's it's terrible because people are being canceled and losing jobs and losing careers because of something that they said in high school. And, or maybe it's just something stupid and egregious that we disagree with now that they say, but they still have the right to say it because this is a liberal democracy and this is America. And I don't think you know even with the me too movement speaking out and calling out terrible behavior is not the same as canceling the person because you know what happens when you cancel somebody who says something atrocious or something that you don't agree with you're not canceling their ideology and you're not canceling your their thoughts you're not canceling what they believe you're just making them more resentful and they may not say it out loud in the public arena But I guarantee you they're saying it behind closed doors to other like-minded people. And then you don't know what your adversary is doing or thinking because you've, quote, unquote, canceled them. And so there's that aspect of this, too, you know, that I just think it's so important that we have voices and have those vigorous debates and those vigorous disagreements and I mean, obviously, there are th- such things as as true hate speech, and these things are are defined. you know, we protect free speech, certain types of free speech, even constitutionally. So those things have always existed, those those call out, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. but to just to set a, a certain autocratic, few, self-designated culture police in charge of who can speak and what they can say is incredibly dangerous because it happens in other countries. And I've done a lot of traveling, you know, Vanessa, and I'll never forget when I was in um, Beijing, China, many years ago on Easter Sunday. And um, my husband and I found a church service. Now, China is a communist country and and for a long time, it didn't tolerate any religion, you know, being expressed there, but they uh, we're opening up a little bit and allowing some gatherings of of people of faith. We went to this, one of these gatherings on Easter Sunday and I pulled out my iPad because I was so uplifted and I wanted to, you know, uh, just take some video of this group of Christians in a communist atheist country um, worshiping together. And my husband leaned over and he said, put that away right now. And afterwards (laughs) he said, you can't do that in this country because our voices aren't allowed here this belief system isn't allowed here. And you're not only putting us in jeopardy, but you're putting this gathering of Christians in jeopardy. So I've seen how cancellation works in other totalitarian autocratic regimes. And it doesn't work out well for anybody in the end, because at some point we'll all get canceled. Everybody's vulnerable.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I know. And I, I think that, again, we're agreeing that many times cancellation alone causes even more toxicity Mm -hmm. as it silenced people versus stirring curiosity and an urge to work things out for a fear of they themselves being canceled. They being either an individual, a group, a brand, whatever. Um, However, I do feel that, again, with more extreme situations, we do need to set a precedent that we're going to be intolerant of those things. Because if we don't, how do those things then change? And how do we influence positive change? Mm-hmm. Let's say we're, we were talking about the Me Too movement. You know, there were a lot of people that assaulted people and got away with it, not once, not twice, several different times. And it was bad the first time. Um, right. So do I believe that those people needed to be brought to justice? 100%. Do mm-hmm. I believe that we talk about alignment a lot? So let's say it's an actor or let's say it's a, uh, an athlete, and for those people to not have the right to work in those industries anymore because those colleagues don't want to align with that type of person anymore, I, I, I believe that that's okay. You know? And we also have the right for, for those people to feel that way. Um, so I, I think it's a fine line.
2: Well, it's a slippery slope is what it is. Because I agree, like people need to be held accountable. The Me Too mo- movement, Allowed women to come forward, call out criminal behavior mm-hmm. illegal behavior, which then was subjected to the institutions that we have in place in a free democracy where they went to court and they were heard and they were prosecuted, and the outcome was what it should should have been. I also think like when you think about the Black Lives Matter movement and um, you know racism in this country and how a lot of A lot of egregious, terrible behaviors were brought to light in the public discourse because of events that, because of George Floyd most recently. Those conversations are are important and we need to have those. But I don't think that that's the same thing as just canceling. Because as soon as you cancel somebody and you just, I don't know where you draw the line. I don't know where you stop the slide down, down the mountain because It feels like right now anybody can be canceled. And I think part of the problem is that we get a lot of our information from social media. And so, in general, throughout history, public spaces have been the marketplace for public discourse and for everybody's voice to be heard. Well, now the public space is social media, and people can be canceled in a flash for something that they say or may have said, or a piece of something that they said that has been completely taken out of context, or something they said on Snapchat when they were 17, Mm -hmm. that they are canceled for the rest of their lives. And it's like this endless purgatory for people, you know? And I feel like um, what we really need is not cancellation. We need reconciliation. And I think that cancellation is replacing reconciliation. When you stop, when you shut down a conversation with people in culture, and when that becomes the default position of a culture is, oh, you say something egregious, you're canceled. That's just an incredibly dangerous cultural precedent to set.
1: Right. And I also just want to mention, you had called out that, you know, with certain situations like the Me Too movement, where criminals were prosecuted. We also know that those systems are not, you know, what they should be a lot of times. And there were some people that didn't get what people hoped they would get in consequence, mm-hmm. right, for their behavior. Well, it's um, not perfect,
2: right? So, there is no perfect solution right. to any of these things, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Again, the egregious behavior. And when you said criminals, exactly that, um, that you want the proper justice to be brought to those types of people. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about cancellation in the vein of somebody having a completely different opinion than yours in just cultural matters, um, when we're trying to learn from each other, if it's a race thing, a white person, a black person, Hispanic person, Asian person, whatever it is, um, I I 100% agree with you because we're human at the end of the day. I mean, we're not computers, we're not robots. We're going to stumble, and that should be okay. We are going to have moments where we don't know and we should be comfortable and vulnerable enough. enough to say, mm-hmm. we don't know. Um, we should be vulnerable and comfortable enough to say, I made a mistake and I want to fix it mm-hmm. again. So long as the damage that was done doesn't cause like intentional trauma. Right. But we're at a point right now where even thinking of the question immediately goes away because of fear, Because the fear of not saying the right thing, not phrasing it the right way, for it to be taken out of context, how do we move the needle? If I'm having a conversation with you about your culture and really trying to ask questions to gain real live lived experience from someone who's been there, for you to say to me, you know what, it's not my responsibility to teach you. There are resources out there. You can go read a book.
2: What if the book's inaccurate? (laughs) Or you don't agree with what the book tells me. And the thing
1: is, what automatically you want me to interpret an author's, you know, notes on whatever the topic is. And to your point, Sue, what if you don't even agree with that? So you want me to go and do that? That's fine. I can. And I think people should do their own research. Don't get me wrong. But I think at the end of the day, human conversation and experiences that are real that they can say, wow. You went through that. Your family went through that. I, I had no idea. I had no idea the severity of it. I can read a book, but it's not going to be the same as getting that real live conversation. You, again, the empathy that you get from somebody when you have that human connection. hmm
2: I just think you always move the needle in a more progressive and, and positive and productive direction when you have Discourse and conversation than when you shut somebody's voice down. Because if people, to your point, are afraid to speak up, Mm -hmm. you're not changing their mind. You're just making them mad. And then they're going to find somebody else who is just as mad as they are. And then you have underground movements and and you don't even know what's going on in those movements because those Mm -hmm. voices have been canceled.
1: Well, I would also say scared, right? Scared. Scared. Yes. Like I go back to fear because if I'm going to have those questions in my head and yeah, I can do my own research, but I'm scared to ask the question, is that not alone dividing and ostracizing people? Because I'm not going to you saying, Hey, I, I have this thought and correct me if I'm wrong or Hey, explain this to me because I don't, I don't get it. And automatically I'm going to be looked at as though I should know, or I should have gone to the proper resources instead of asked them or looking at them as the person that should have the answers for me to do me a service.
2: It or you're comes- never going
1: to know. Like the other thing is that people say, you are a such and such category of human.
2: You could never know. You're right. a- automatically cut off from ever, ever- right. understanding because you don't have the lived experience. Well, where does that get us? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And I I mean, you make such a great point about fear. And I think people are afraid. I think people are afraid to say what they think. Again, they may still be thinking it, but they're scared to say it. And when we lose our freedom of voice, what's the next freedom exactly. that we lose? Is it the freedom of assembly? Are we afraid to gather together to speak? Is it, you know, freedom from fear, which we should have, again, in a liberal democracy? Do we lose those freedoms as well? So it was really interesting because Kayla and I were talking about this, Kayla being my youngest daughter this morning on our way back from volunteering. And um, she was saying how lately the phrase, it didn't occur to him, is being panned in the media. Like if a politician says something or does something wrong and he says, well, it didn't occur to me blah, 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 then he's being canceled or she's being canceled because everybody else is saying it should have occurred to him. And she said, I totally disagree. Something not occurring to you is a completely legitimate excuse. There are things that don't occur to all of us because we only come from our own lived experience and we have to be able to show other people that grace. Now, of course, people are going to cop out and say they did something wrong that, oh, it just didn't occur to me. And I think that that's going to come out if people keep prodding and having that conversation, people will Mm -hmm. figure out bullshit from reality. But to just say that it didn't occur to me is unacceptable as an excuse for anybody in any situation, anytime is such hypocrisy because we have all put our foot in our mouth. We have all misunderstood. We have all evolved, hopefully in our lifetimes and hold different worldviews or more open worldviews now than when we had less experience. And cancel culture does not allow evolution.
1: I agree. And I think that a lot of that comes from distrust, which we look at history and things that have unfolded. And I understand. I understand why there's distrust, especially with politicians, um, with, you know, assembly and free freedom of speech too, fear of the people that are saying certain things, because Mm -hmm. just because they're allowed to say them, doesn't mean they're positive, you know, Um, that alone can cause fear with certain groups of people. And I, I acknowledge that to your point, being in other countries where you can't even like barely think it without Mm -hmm. something really egregious happening to you or your family by the government or the powers that be, we don't want to get there. So I, you know, I have said it time and time again, and I said it a lot during, you know, the Trump years, <laughs> that we all want to kind of forget happened. <laughs> Hopefully, oh, we all want to forget that happened. <laughs> um, you know, I, I used to say, I don't agree with most of those people. But man, am I grateful mm-hmm. to live in, in in a in a country where I can have a difference of opinion And vocalize it very loud if I want to, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, right? um, you know, without getting seriously hurt or be put away. Disappearing,
2: exactly. I I agree with you 100%. It's like knowing that that certain worldviews are out there that I disagree with. I, I want to know. I want to know what's going on. I don't want those voices to be subversive and in the mm-hmm. background and just doing things, you know, without my knowing about it. And, and I just don't see any way that cancellation moves the needle forward on a better society and a more uh, open and, and understanding society. And I certainly don't want to live in a country where I'm afraid to be wrong because I'm going to be wrong. And so are you. And so is the person who's in charge of the cultural discourse right now. They may be. And it's interesting because we're seeing people in Hollywood who might have canceled others now being canceled themselves. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's because we're all human Mm -hmm. and we all say stupid things. Again, we all make mistakes. Um, and, and there are certain points that we're just all always going to disagree on, but guess what? We all occupy the same planet, we've got to learn to live side by side, even with those with whom we strongly disagree. And I just wanted to share this one statistic that I looked up because this is concerning to me. Um, A Politico study poll in 2020 said that 27% of Americans believe that cancel culture could positively impact society. That is, more than one out of four people believes that cancellation can be positive. And I just think that's so naive and so foolhardy.
1: You know, maybe it's going back all the way around and you started a conversation with kind of um, defining what cancel culture is. We talk about language and the power of language yes. and really educating people on what these things really mean and the potential consequences. Again, the, the equal or greater reaction to the things that are happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, goodness, Mic Drop Creative, our production company, We focus on underrepresented voices and uplifting and amplifying them. That's our whole mission. We are women. I am a Hispanic woman. You are a woman over 50. I mean, we are in those categories and we want to help disrupt, right? right? Disrupt and and break those narratives. Um, But in doing so, we also know that we need to incorporate voices of the people that have been privileged, that have lived the life that. That's now looked upon as, okay, you've been in a superior position for so long because of how you present yourself, because you are a white male, because you are from Mm -hmm. this area of of the country or wherever, whatever it may be. Those voices need to be part of these conversations Mm -hmm. and advocates to move this needle forward in a positive direction. And we're just saying, no, we're saying, no, you can't because of that you you've had too much privilege no you can't be part of this conversation in trying to unite you're dividing like oh, how do you not see that
2: yeah and and in the example of old white men <laughs> cuz i get a bad rap i mean yes there are some really crappy old white men out there we all have crappy people in our demographics there are crappy people amazing, everywhere we all have amazing people in our demographics as well and we want to learn from those people right and we want to have all voices at the table because otherwise let's be really honest and not hypocritical here. If we're saying the people who've had power in the past need to just get out of the way, they no longer count. All you're doing is the same old, same old, you're just trading stakeholders. It's a new Mm -hmm. stakeholder. It's a new winner, new loser, but we're still operating on a zero-sum game mentality where one person's going to win and the other person's going to be in the sidelines. And that's not what we're purporting to want, we're purporting to want equality and inclusivity. So let's, let's walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Let's bring everybody to the table.
1: Yeah. I was having an interesting conversation with someone recently and we were having these, you know, DEI conversations. Right. And it was interesting to me, he was an older white male and he was very, very open-minded and very aligned with, with our mission Sue. But he said, it's very interesting because behind closed doors, these uglier conversations are still being had. Mm-hmm. You're still having these stereotypical people point the finger, laugh, not pull up, you know, not not yeah. bring these other people to the table. And I think that's where these very extremist thoughts of no, we're tired of it. We're going to do it our way come into play. Mm-hmm. I understand people being invigorated and saying enough is enough. I get that. I understand that. And I understand that that's human nature too, to say something's got to give, and we've tried it all these right ways and it hasn't worked. So now we're going to do it this way. Frustration. Yeah. Very, very frustrated. So my point is, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that it's not this all or nothing. I know that there has to be somewhere in the middle where we meet and work together because the needle is going to go from one extreme to the other extreme. And that's not how we lead progressive and forward moving lives. Like, that's just not how it works. We've right. seen what extremism does. It look at well, history.
2: <laughs> exactly. I totally get the frustration of nothing's working. And I'm still out here on the margins and nobody's hearing me and nobody's respecting my voice. I mean, to your point earlier, you're Latina. I'm. A woman over 50. Talk about mm-hmm. <laughs> a disregarded demographic, right? The older women get, the more we're tossed away because we're still, still so much valued on very superficial things. But the reality is that progress doesn't come from just being reactionary. And frustration and reaction and just slamming the door shut might feel good to you and it might work to create some drama in the moment. But I really don't think it, it Advances the needle most of the time, and to talk about like if it's the old white men still going behind the closed door and running the world the way they always did, well then you can cancel them all you want. All you're doing, to my point earlier, is is you're just pissing them off, and now you don't know what they're doing because you don't hear them (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they're they're doing the stuff behind closed doors. Um, So. I just don't think it's efficient. I don't think it's effective. I totally get the frustration and I totally get, and again, only from my own lived experience, right? Like I'm not a person of color. I'm not a person who grew up in poverty. I had other you know, things that, that I dealt with in my family and in my um, life experience that can give me some empathy and some sort of analogous, I guess, empathy. But at the end of the day, we've got to think about what is the most effective way that we can understand each other and try to come together? There are always going to be the really extreme voices that are truly hate speech, that are harmful, you know, that are demeaning and they do need to be called out. They do need to be called out. Absolutely. But I just don't
1: think you can cancel. I just don't think you can
2: flat out completely cancel.
1: Well, I think that it also goes back to being aligned with what you're saying, If in the spirit of, you know, making change and disrupting and influencing, you know, just radical change, you know, because a lot of these Mm -hmm. things are, they get to that point when we talk about extremism, you know, you talk about transparency. So if you want someone to be transparent and be vulnerable, that goes into everything that we're talking about. Mm
2: -hmm. It goes into
1: saying, "I, I don't know talk to me about it. Tell me Mm -hmm. like, what was it like? How is it like? I know, you know, high level or superficially, but I'd love to learn more. I'm not going to get that from an online resource from a book. That's only going to give me, um, you know, this educational corporate lingo I, it's almost like learning a different language, if you will, like when you learn Spanish in school versus conversational Spanish to actually be a local in, in Spanish communities, you know, like and, and get by in that way where you're when you're relatable and you you grasp things more. What we're talking about is not not so much the cheesy, like hold hands and sing Kumbaya, because we know that that's not reality, right?
2: But have the courage to have the difficult conversation.
1: 100%. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like get into a room and say, you know what? We're probably going to bring up and stir up a lot of emotions here. But I want to walk away with a greater understanding of one, what you've been through and how we can move forward. How can we move forward together? How can we progress together? So not going from, oh, this person was, You know, superior for so long, and their family line, and their you know race, and now we want that. It's like, how can we? How can we move forward together? Another thing that really aggravates me is, and believe me, I'm Hispanic. If we want to really get granular, you know, my heritage, we have been slaves, we have been battered, we have been all the things that other cultures have also, you know, unfortunately gone through, and throughout history. But do I meet someone who's different from me? You sue a white woman and say, how dare you not know? And, you know, I'm not going to tell you, (laughs) you, you, I'm not going to tell you. I'm also going to blame you and your family for things that my ancestors went through. How Mm -hmm. am I going to do that? How am I going to put that weight on you?
2: Well, if we go back far enough, every culture has imprisoned, has enslaved, has impoverished people. Right on every continent of this planet, people of every skin. If you go back far enough, have done something crappy to another people group that they didn't like because we're all human and we're all flawed. So going backwards, I don't think moves you forward. Now I will say I think it's so important to learn from history and not to cancel history either, hmm. you know. And I think that that's dangerous. In Chapel Hill. Um, The last couple of years, uh, my daughter was at school there, and that was when they took down a lot of the statues to Confederate soldiers, and sometimes Mm -hmm. they were just smashing them and things like that. I mean, and we had conversations about that because I think, yeah, you take them down in the same way that you don't want to put Nazi soldier statues up around Germany, right? That was her point. I agree with that 100%. But to completely destroy it means that, you know, if we don't know our history, we will repeat our history. Mm-hmm. When I was at the Reagan Library uh, in California a few years ago, they had, for some reason, an Egyptian display there. And there was a like a stone carving that had a long story written in it in hieroglyphs. And then somebody like a thousand years later had, gone by, had come by and scratched over that. So you couldn't read it anymore. It was like ancient graffiti, basically, mm, I guess. Mm. And, and I remember thinking at the time, because this was the same time Kayla and I were having these conversations about Silent Sam and the controversies at UNC Chapel Hill, like, I'll never know what so totally pissed off the graffiti writer. I'll never know what mistake that prior generation made because it was scratched out. Mm -hmm. And so how am I going to
1: know better than to make it? How do we learn? And we talk about making mistakes and failures and all that, you know, and how we we learn best from making some of these big mistakes, especially as a society, right? To move humankind forward. And yes, did those statues need to come down? 100%. Mm -hmm. Is there a place for them to live? Absolutely. Yes. Do you go to a museum? Do you make an exhibit that shows how far along we've come, what we used to do and talk to our children and say, can you believe that these people were glorified even though they've done horrendous things? And and then in this, you know, 21st century, we decided, you know what, that is not okay. And we took them down and now this is where they live. And you have those conversations. You silent that conversation altogether if you just destroy these things,
2: right? You cannot learn from what you've erased. And I would even go even further. I agree. I think we should have places where those statues are put and the stories are put and the context of the time, because that's the other Mm -hmm. thing I think we do a lot of times as we apply our modern morality and life situation to the previous centuries where the reality and, and the worldview and the understanding, everything was just different then. And we can't go back and apply exactly how we think now to how people thought then. And but I just want to also... say,
1: it doesn't make it right, but it no. was different then. 100%. Exactly. Yes.
2: Yeah. You know, again, we evolve, hopefully. But um, I would even say in that same museum, you say, okay, look how far we've come. And what do we see going on now? that looks like the stirrings up of the beginning of the same mistake that that previous Mm. generation made that led to this injustice because humans will always be humans. Humans will always be prejudiced against somebody, you know, and and we have to keep reminding ourselves. We have to keep reminding ourselves and learning. And that to me is how you move the needle forward and how you prevent those things from repeating.
1: I couldn't agree more with you. And again, just, I guess we're talking about keeping the communication going and learning mm-hmm. and how do we do that and how do we best do that moving forward, especially now in a digital age, you know, I mean, that's, that's another layer on top of all of this. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a big, big onion. <laughs> well, and everything we ever say or think is out there
2: now, which is not something I grew up with. It's not something you grew up with really either, although you're mm-hmm. younger than I am. I know that like our kids, Everything's recorded and everything. So if you make a mistake, I know that's another conversation I've had with my girls that are like, I don't know how anybody in our generation is ever going to run for public office because at some point they said or did something stupid mm-hmm. and it could come back to bite them. So it comes down to the human tendency to be hypocritical and to rush to judgment on others when you need to first look in the mirror at yourself and go, okay, could I have made a similar type of mistake in my own way? Mm -hmm. With my own, you know, um, misunderstandings and prejudices and Mm -hmm. assumptions, assumptions Mm -hmm. a lot of times, but, you know, uh, circling all the way back to the beginning as, as professional communicators, I think we feel so strongly in the power of conversation and the power of courageous conversations, Yes, asking the tough questions. Like you said, we have to get uncomfortable. We have Mm -hmm. to be okay with that. And being Uh,
1: okay to raise your hand. We talk about that too. Like the person in the room that's thinking these things and is the only one courageous enough to raise their hand because everyone else is fearful. Like you want those people to continue doing that. But in the culture in which we're living now, it's becoming more and more unlikely for those people to continue doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll also say, you know, as a lover of just film and TV, and that's what we do, but... You know, I love watching period pieces that have a um, contemporary twist. And, you know, obviously we talk about Bridgerton a lot here too, but Bridgerton does a really great job at being very inclusive in their casting and almost rewriting history and showing how if we had been more inclusive, if we had been more um, open to communication and dialogue about things that make us uncomfortable at the very start, right? How much further along we would be now? And that's how I like look at these shows. I'm like, man, if those conversations were really happening then, if if that that mindset was really happening then, how much further would we be as a society now?
2: Yeah. Exactly. You know, if you're part of the the 27% of Americans who believe that cancel culture could be a positive, feel free to reach out to us because we're not going to cancel you. We want to hear what your thoughts are. We want to understand where you're coming from uh, because I really struggle with that mindset. I think it's a cop out and I understand I the frustration where it comes from, but I think it's it's uh, the, the short and easy fix in the short term, which ends up having very dangerous long-term repercussions
1: we need to figure out what outcome we want what what's our end goal here because if it's to cut people off and not talk about it again and create more fear then we can continue doing what we're doing but if we want to change that narrative we need to start making some changes on our communication style
2: agree 100 percent
1: Thanks for joining us here on We Get Real AF. Make sure you subscribe to the show and text this episode to a friend. Find us at ifundwomen.com. We have patron exclusives waiting for you. Plus,
2: you'll just feel good. Special thanks to our WeGraph Live events and technical director, Mitchell Machado. You can find Mitchell on LinkedIn, spelled M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-M-A-C-H-A-D-O. And we want to give a big thanks to our podcast sound designer, Sam McLean, that's spelled M C L E A N, of InPhase Audio. Thanks for listening.